Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. To put it mildly, Mark Abma is having one hell of a ski career. From sharing an apartment back in the day with the likes of J.P. Eau Claire, Julian Renier, and Anthony Boronowski, to standing on top of lines filming with Shane McConkie, Hugo Harrison, and Ingrid Backstrom, to now serving as a wizened veteran and guide for a new generation of skiers like Sam Cooch and Logan Piotta, Mark is both a historian of, and a central figure in, modern big mountain skiing. And he is still going strong. So I talked with Mark about how he got into skiing, his trajectory to the top of the game, the fitness and dietary regimen that has allowed Mark to continue to operate each year at a high level, and his broader health and wellness practices that not only allow him to perform so well in big terrain, but enable him to lead a happy and healthy life off the mountain too. So whether you're here for stories about the Canadian Air Force or Shane or Hugo or Mark's first time heli skiing, or you'd like to hear about the specific practices, exercises, and routines that keep Mark going year in and year out, well, actually, I think you're all going to really enjoy hearing about both. So let's just go ahead and get right to it. Mark, how are you today? Life is good, man. Yeah, I'm on a pretty fun routine right now where um, I'm getting up nice and early, and I kind of go through a rotation of either going to the gym in the morning or going for a hike in the morning. And so for me, that just kind of kickstarts my day and gets the blood flowing through my body, my brain, and it just puts me in a really good mood for the rest of the day. We're going to be talking a good bit about some health and wellness stuff in this conversation because I know this is an important element of your life. But let's just go ahead and talk a little bit about your background and uh, how you got into skiing and whether that was one of your first loves or whether that was something that came along a bit later? Yeah, I didn't start skiing until later in life. I was 10 years old. And I'd say as soon as I clicked skis onto my feet, I immediately connected with it. And it totally took over my life. It was all I could think about. And so I think that was a, a first love for me in life, you know. From zero to 10, you were just wandering the earth waiting for... Uh... <laughs> Something. I was riding my BMX around, I guess. <laughs> On my rollerblades. <laughs> Is that what you... Okay, so zero to 10. Zero to 10 was kind of BMX and rollerblading? Yeah, skateboarding. I was into track and field and soccer. And, uh, and I enjoyed all of them and I was pretty good at them. But it was skiing that, you know, as soon as I got into the you know, the land of, of snow and trees and not having any borders or rules and people telling you where to go and how to do it, that I truly fell in love with it. From, you know, zero to 10, as we're calling it now, for some reason, where were you living? I was living in a town called Langley, which is a Vancouver suburb. And there, like, there's ski resorts nearby, but my parents didn't really ski. And so... It wasn't until some of our family friends invited us to go on a little ski vacation. And, uh, and that kind of just cracked the code. And all of a sudden, my parents were like, well, this is a great way for the family to be able to spend time together. And so we started doing that once a year where we go on a four or five day vacation. 
And then when I was 14, my parents discovered that there was a ski club at one of the local ski hills. And so um, there was a guy that was just starting up a freestyle ski club that year. And my parents knew that I loved to, to jump. So they're like, well, this would be great for you. So they signed me up for that. My sisters got into a racing program. And, uh, and I was really lucky because I had really awesome coaches from in that freestyle club from when I was 14 until I was 18. And they're really great in the way that they were young and cool and they made it really fun, but they weren't just focused on freestyle skiing, and w which was mogul skiing. And they really put a, a lot of emphasis into skiing all over the mountain and just taking advantage of conditions and um, kind of helping shape me into becoming uh, a pretty diverse skier. And one of my coaches was an ex-racer, so he also kind of gave me some of that, that technique, which is obviously really, really beneficial. And then when I was about 18, uh, my ski coach kind of put a bug in my ear that I should uh, apply for the provincial freestyle ski team. And uh, I guess I had decent enough results to, uh, to get onto that program. So, um, yeah, after high school, I moved to Whistler and joined the BC freestyle ski team. And I did that for three years. And, uh, and that was a super fun time because I was with 12 other guys that were all, all super motivated to, to ski super hard and train really hard. And it was during that era that people were just starting to do off-axis tricks. It was like that was during the time when the new Can Canadian Air Force was coming into play. And... Uh, and so when we weren't training moguls, we were building kickers and just hucking our meat into pow and throwing ourselves whichever way and seeing if we'd land on our feet. And uh, so it was just like a lot of just a lot of playing around. And uh, and obviously when you're 19 living in Whistler, it's the best times ever. <laughs> <laughs> so we skied hard, we partied hard, and uh, and we trained really hard, which is really cool. I had a great coach there that really instilled a, a good training re regiment for me that I still carry with me to this day. And, uh, and I largely attribute the fact that I'm doing this now 20 years later because of um, the training. And uh, a lot of it is just like putting yourself into the right headspace so you can just keep doing it. Because training is not always fun. But if you know that it's good for you and you can find some pleasure through the pain, then, uh, yeah, then it all becomes worthwhile. Was there a moment where you started to really get into seeking out bigger lines or was this all happening? Like you said, I mean, your, your coaches were encouraging you guys to do more than just ski bumps, but when did that start that? I mean, I think a lot of folks might know you best as a big mountain skier. And so when did that element of things kind of become uh, either more of interest or just the thing you were scouting out and looking to do more and more of? Yeah, I think, you know, between the ages of 14 and 18, I was just a weekend warrior and, and training moguls. But if it was a good pow day, then I would, I would ditch the team. And there was this one little zone that we called the shoots, and it's maybe 1,500 feet long, maybe 1,000 feet long. And I would always just go pin it out there. And I remember, like, I had a beacon on me, but none of my buddies had a beacon, and we were just, you know, just young, dumb, and not really knowing what we were doing. But I always gravitated towards going out of bounds and hiking around and just like back then I was doing 
like jump turns. Like Scott Schmidt was the guy that I really looked up to for that, you know, which then transitioned into really looking up to Seth Morrison and Dean Cummins and, and that whole movement of skiing. And so when I moved to Whistler to go join the, the freestyle club there, everything was five or six times bigger. So I just kind of took that same inspiration that I was getting from Scott Schmidt and Seth Morrison and just brought it into the mountains there, along with skiing moguls. And at the same time, we were all learning how to grab and flip and, and do that whole thing. And it was really cool. I was skiing with people that were better than me, and so they were pushing me really hard. And remember, even back then, in 98, a good buddy of mine was throwing Misty 7s off of natural features, which fast forward 10 years, and I'm looking back, and I'm like, wow, Tyler was so ahead of his time. Like People are still trying to do that, you know, and he's doing it on mogul skis. And then during the summers, I was working at High North Ski Camp. And so then all of a sudden, I was getting to hang out with uh, – Anthony Bornowski and Julian Renier and JP and Zox and, and that whole posse. And so I skied moguls on the provincial ski team and competed at a NORAM level for three years. But eventually I, I kind of, I had to stop doing it because I was spending so much time on the East Coast where it was just kind of icy and cold. And meanwhile, I was looking at the snow forecast back in Whistler. And, and I was like, I, I can't do this anymore. And meanwhile, I was, you know, learning new tricks during the spring and summer but then i was regressing during the winter because i was so focused on moguls and i was like i just need to start focusing purely on um like slope and pipe and big air just keep working on my tricks so i can try to stay up to speed with the sport right now so my first year that i quit skiing moguls i, I rented this futon in this one bedroom suite with these two other girls that were sharing their room and it was super tight quarters. They were super messy. Um, I was like living off of rice and mushroom soup and working at a ski shop during the day and, uh, and then coaching the freestyle club on the weekends. And all of a sudden I was like, damn, I'm not really getting as much skiing as I hope because I'm working so much right now. And so I started entering into some contests and then started winning some cash and i remember at one point i, I think i made like two grand i was like all right quit my job <laughs> <laughs> i've got all the cash i need to survive for the rest of the winter and uh and that's when i just kind of kept um dedicating myself to spending a ton of time in the park and just kept entering more and more contests and then anthony bornowski he really recognized how much work i was putting in and seeing that I wasn't really having the like the finances to to make it all work, so he actually he invited me to live in a house with him and JP and Julian, and paid my rent the whole winter. He's like, I know you're going to be working for Zox at High North in the summer, so just pay me back after you've finished working for the summer, which was huge for me. You know that free rent allowed you know it's just saved me a couple grand right there, and so I was able to put that towards gas money to go snowmobiling with those guys and they taught me how to build backcountry kickers and really kind of helped shape me during during those years and uh and Bornowski as well he introduced me to the uh, team manager at k2 and through that then sessions came about and i was getting decent enough results with comps that eventually got the attention of, of matchstick and i uh, filmed the park segment the first year or first spring that I started filming with them. 
And then the next season, uh, Steve Winter came up to me at the Powder Wars and asked me if I want to go heli skiing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was a really crazy year for me because I filmed with Matchstick, with Poor Boys and Warren Miller and produced good segments with, with all of them and then had that trip up to uh, – or my first heli trip was up to Bella Coola. And I went up there with Shane McConkie and Hugo and Ingrid, and we we totally nailed it. It was pretty interesting, actually, because Matchstick was up there for six weeks, and they had three different crews that were coming up for two-week stints. And I ended up going up there for the middle two weeks. And we, we totally hosed it down, and everybody got great shots. And the two crews on either side of us just kind of got skunked because of weather. And uh, I always, I'm just so thankful that I ended up going in on that middle two-week stint because ultimately that trip was what catapulted me and um, allowed me to get uh, male performance of the year that year and, and just kind of, yeah, just allowed me to get into the career that I'm still riding right now. So it was, uh, it's cool how it all worked out, you know, and it was great being able to have people like Hugo and Shane kind of help um, kind of mentor me while while I was up there because it was totally in over my head. <laughs> and uh, okay, wait a second. I got I've got to interrupt. I just want to make sure this that we've got this timeline straight. What summer was it? What year? What summer was it when you moved in with Anthony, JP, Julian? That would have been two thousand two or two thousand three. And how long did you end up living with those guys? For one season. One season. <laughs> More or less buttoned up professional <laughs> arrangement or tear it down partying kind of scene for that year? More or less professional. I mean, we partied for sure. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, th- those guys were all pretty dedicated, you know? JP, he's, he spends a ton of time editing, and he was like kind of a computer nerd that way, you know? Like, Remember, he got like the first MacBook that we had ever seen, and uh, and so as soon as he got that, he was doing a bunch of edits for Armada, and uh, and Anthony, he definitely parties, but at the same time, he's like he's a master of his craft. He's always been super artistic, so he really dedicated himself to that. And uh, well, all those boys were with with Armada, you know, and I think they all had their roles in their company. I'd say everybody was pretty focused in that household, and. And I think that was really good for me just to see how dedicated they were to to not only to scheme, but to their passions and their their skills and creativity outside of skiing that they were able to bring back into the ski industry. And then you moved so fast over like these things that I think we could hit the pause button and go way in depth on all of them. But then when you talk about your, you then first started, you were first invited to go film with Matchstick. What's, where are we on the timeline? What year is that then? Yeah. So that would have still been 2002. That year I went up to, uh, I did like Parkasaurus and Super Park. So I started getting a few shots there and then I ended up going to Mammoth and doing a park shoot there and then going to Squad and doing a park shoot there and just kind of assembled a f- enough to have, I think I shared a segment with Chris Turpin that year. And then the next year, I started focusing more time into going into the backcountry. And it was that year where I just started hitting kickers. 
But at the same time, I went to, to Europe with Warren Miller and started skiing some lines there. And then later in that spring, then I went to Bella Coola, and then that's when my mind was completely blown and my life was forever altered. Just because after that, I, was, I realized that I'll never do another competition again, and I just want to continue to focus on spending more and more time in, in those kind of mountains. And so then you find yourself out with Shane and Ingrid and Hugo? Yeah. I Tell me anything <laughs> about this. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, uh, what comes to mind when you think back about that, that trip? Well, it was interesting because both Ingrid and I were both uh, greenhorns at that, at that point. Ingrid was just coming up, so McConkie and Hugo were obviously legends of the sport. And, and it's interesting because they're just like super down-to-earth guys. You know, like we see what we see in the films, but at the end of the day, they're just like regular dudes. And uh, like Hugo's a pretty quiet dude. McConkie's obviously a little bit more out there. <laughs> but, um, but ultimately it was... It was, it was kind of interesting because when we were going out of the mountains, I was like, I was the new guy. And so we'd fly up and we'd set the heli down. We'd start scoping lines. And I was generally letting those guys take like whatever line they want. And I would just figure something out. And I was kind of like <laughs> learning from what they were picking. And I was just picking up the scraps, you know. And I think like slough management is the hugest thing out there you know so just like developing a plan a b and c is just is so key you know and so they really helped me hone in on that and the other interesting thing is we were up there for two weeks but we didn't really ski for the first seven or eight days or whatever just because the conditions weren't right so just learning patience was another big thing you know yeah so we went like uh, whitewater rafting and kayaking and hiking and just like all these things that you wouldn't think you'd be doing on a heli skiing trip so they like really kind of taught me quite quickly just to chill out <laughs> just roll with the punches and those mountains are just so big so it's just, it's just a very humbling experience up there because um, prior to going to Bellacula, I was in Europe with Warren Miller in my last run of the trip my confidence was starting to get high and I just got worked I ended up tomahawking down the space so when I went to Bellacula, I was in a pretty humbled state which I'm very very thankful for because <laughs> Because <laughs> the mountains are big enough there, where if like if you're feeling too confident, then you can get smacked pretty pretty quickly. You say you were in a humbled state. That could also kind of mean an overly cautious or tentative state, which might you know how that might not be exactly what you want, right? You don't think you want to be standing on top of some of this stuff in a tentative way. No, definitely not. I'm curious to kind of hear your take or if this is something that you've learned or thought about or, or um, honed over the years, the difference between, you know, humility seems like a good thing. Being tentative seems like maybe not a good thing. And how this all factors out like in your head, in your headspace uh, when you're standing on big lines. Yeah. I, like I can't say I was put into a tentative state because of that previous crash. It was more or less just terrifying straight up because <laughs> yeah, I got, I remember the first time I got dropped out of a heli, it was a tow-in. So the door's off, my skis are under my feet or no, no, the skis were in the basket, but I had to, I had to hop out and I had to pull the skis out of the basket and I didn't even know how to close the basket on the side of the heli property. So I'm like, 
standing on the ground, like yanking on the basket, just being a complete junk show. Couldn't pull my backpack up because the buckle got stuck to the inside of the basket. So <laughs> kind of a rough start there. And then I think it was the second day that we were up there. I'm standing on top of this massive line. Hugo's just down the ridge from me, and he's dropping in first. And Hugo, at that point, he hadn't crashed in three years, I believe. And so he, I remember hearing him count, three, two, one, drop. He started rallying down this face. And usually after 20 seconds or so, you'd see somebody come out of the bottom or Hugo come out of the bottom. And I remember just seeing the slough dumping out of the bottom. I was like, oh, that's kind of weird. And I guess he had tomahawked really bad. And I'm not sure if you can remember to your book in Matchstick Productions from way back in the day. But, but uh, Hugo had this crazy tomahawk where he got spun like 20 times. And uh, I remember thinking, holy shit, like, Hugo just crashed. Like, what's going on here, you know? And then the next thing you know, Gaffney gets on the radio. He's like, Abma, you're up next. <laughs> <laughs> and right away, my heart just sunk to the floor. I was standing on top of the classic rollover line. I could see three turns ahead of me, and then I was staring 3,000 feet down to the valley bottom. It was just so terrifying being up there because there's just so much unknown. And uh, anyhow, I dropped in. The, the line didn't make the movie, but I, but I made it to the bottom. And I remember I got to the bottom. I just had this massive primal scream come out of me. You know, There was just like so much... I think excitement and fear and everything that just had to come out of my body at that point, you know? And then I think after that point, I just started to kind of find my groove and started to feel more and more comfortable up there. And yeah, we ended up having a, an amazing trip. I think I kind of had lost track of the fact of like, you've like hung out with, lived with, or been skiing with everyone. Yeah, there's a lot of generations that <laughs> have kind of been floating through. It's, yeah, it's been pretty interesting. Especially now, with this year, I was filming with Matchstick, and I was skiing with Sam Cooch, who's 21. And in my opinion, he's arguably one of the best skiers on the planet right now. And then Logan Peota, he's 24, 25. And then Carl Fosfett, who's 28. So these guys were all... Like, I could pretty much be Sam's dad. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they uh, they started calling me uh, Funkle Abma. <laughs> so I just, like, kind of became the uncle of that trip. And so all of a sudden, the roles changed. And they were leaning on me for uh, um, for any experience or knowledge that I could share with them. So it was, it was really cool just to uh, be a part of that full circle experience. Yeah, it's really remarkable. I mean, what you're talking about is, I mean, the godfathers in Hugo and Seth and and you and Ingrid being the new the newbies and and still doing it. Yeah, I know it really is great and I feel very very fortunate for the fact that I still love it so so much because I like when anything becomes a job, then you know, you can start to lose some of the the passion or zest for it, you know. But um, I think just because now I'm, I'm just rounding out my life and creating a lot more balance with my life. Like I don't really ski much in the summer anymore or at all. So by the time winter comes back in November, I feel like I'm 14 again, you know. And I was that kid that was sitting in class looking up the mountains and seeing the snow line come down again. 
And so I feel like I start off the year with that, that young energy. And now for me, you know, I've kind of honed in on the people that really fuel me and I really uh, uh, resonate with when I'm, when I'm out skiing. And so when I'm with those people, then I'm just having a, an amazing time. And now, you know, I've got the luxury where I'm able to go to wherever the snow is good. And I find so long as I'm skiing in soft snow, then I'm really, really happy. I'm still like, I enjoy skiing groomers and crud and whatnot, but like pow makes me so, so happy. And I really realized that after my first knee injury, it was like my first run back on snow and I was skiing down like a blue square run. And there's maybe five, 10 centimeters of pow. And I was just skiing very casually and very slowly. And I was like, this is the most amazing sensation right now. And I want to maintain this love and appreciation and stoke for this simplicity for the rest of my life, you know? And so that's what I just try to bring myself back to as often as possible, just appreciating the simplicity and the freedom that we have while we're in the mountains, you know? Like, it's so rare that you can have a whole mountain as a playground and you can go wherever you want, pretty much. You know, because we, like, we grow up in a very defined society, you know, whether it's driving down the street or walking down a hallway in school and you kind of have to, like you're told where to turn left and right and when to stop. And then, and all of a sudden you get out there and the, the sky's the limit, you know? So that was, um, yeah, just a pretty powerful experience for me just to be able to appreciate. Um, yeah, just that simplicity. And that's something I, I carry with me to even right now. Like, um, I'm doing this job for this development uh, that I'm doing in town here right now. And I'm, like, literally taking the grunt jobs of, like, sweeping and picking up garbage. And I'm, like, finding so much pleasure in the simplicity and uh, monotony of that kind of work. I think that is such a critical point of like living a good life, which is the capacity for any of us. And I think this is something that we can work on and get better, but the capacity for any of us to appreciate simple or mundane situations and tasks. And I found myself talking to a student group recently at Western Colorado University. And, you know, I think increasingly kids graduating from college are being pushed on like, what are you going to do with your life? What are you doing next? Do you have a job lined up? And I honestly, my advice, better or for worse, was like, seriously, don't worry about it. But the one thing is, whatever it is you go do, go all in. Whatever it is you are doing, you can learn from that experience. And there are going to be things that, you know, things you can take away from it and things that you can learn how to, if you're a pizza delivery person, there's things about that that you can learn and enjoy and, and just delve in. People who are like, ah, screw it, I'm just working a pizza delivery job, you know, life kind of sucks. It's like, yeah, I think that's actually more on you <laughs> if your life sucks than the idea that just having the right job is suddenly what transforms life and makes it good. Right. It's like before you criticize your situation, your external situation, criticize what's going on between your own ears. 
Absolutely. I mean, those people that are on the mountain, they're having a good day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <You know>? right. <laughs> and if you're not having a good day up there, well, then, yeah, there's definitely a lot of work that, that has to be done. And, uh, and that's something I've been doing a lot of for myself lately is just, um, well, I think I've been pretty blessed, you know, like you said, you know, like as a kid, not to know exactly what it is that you're supposed to be doing with your life, but just kind of rolling with the flow and doing what you are feeling drawn and, um, and finding passion towards. Cause I think as long as you're feeling passionate about it, then you're going to be able to find joy through that. And, and I think that's why right now, you know, like during the day, I'm like cleaning up garbage and sweeping drywall dust and whatnot, which I think if I was working for somebody else, I probably wouldn't be enjoying myself so much. But the fact that I'm working for myself, I'm finding a lot of pride in it. And so, yeah, but I think, like you said, you can find, <laughs> yeah, whatever it is, you can find joy, but it takes a lot of work, internal work to get there, you know, and, uh, and, and you can go deep down the rabbit hole with what that takes. And I think once again, I was quite blessed because I think I'm just generally a, quite a happy person. And so it makes it a little bit easier for me, whereas like some people aren't, but whatever the case may be, it's like, you know, we all have these highs and lows and they're all relative to, to wherever, whatever state you're in. So I think ultimately it's just becoming aware to your highs and lows so you don't get stuck in that low, you know? So when you're in that low, you, you can recognize it, figure out why it's coming up because it's there to try to teach you a lesson and try to figure out how to um, implement that into your life or how to change that aspect of your life. And something that's really helped me out with that was uh, the Muse meditation tool. And I'm not sure if you've heard of that. I haven't. So it's, uh, it comes in a couple different uh, modalities. And one is a headband. And the other one is actually Smith Optics incorporated this technology into their sunglasses. So what it does is it picks up on your brain activity, relays it back to your phone, and um, relays that brain activity through soundscape. So you can choose from rainforest or I use the ocean. And so if your brain is scattered, then the wind is blowing, the waves are crashing. And as you learn to calm your mind, then all of a sudden the waves come to a stop, the wind comes to a stop. And when you're in a calm state, then you get these bird chirps. And that's when you know you're, you're reaching that, that theta state. And... So I think there's, there's a couple key or interesting elements with this tool. Is firstly, it's teaching you how to calm yourself because I think that is an art in itself because we're all just like, especially with our phones now, we're really not giving ourselves a lot of time just to let our brains and minds chill out. Um, but I think the other interesting thing is at the end of your meditation, it gives you a graph and it lets you know how many recoveries you've made. And so recoveries are well, you're going from being in the scatter state back down into a calm state and so I think that in itself is an art because it's so easy to get caught in our own emotions whether it's frustration or anger or sadness or loneliness and then we just kind of get stuck there you know 
But if you can have that self-awareness that you can catch yourself there and figure out why it's going on and then ultimately use that to to better yourself, then all of a sudden you can start pushing through all these things that are kind of pinning you down, like whether that's that, that anger issue that you might have or whatever it may be, you know? And I think that's kind of my goal in my life is just trying to become more aware of what's triggering me to go into these different emotional states, you know, so that I can just have a more even, even keeled emotional state and in turn, uh, a longer lasting, happier state. And so that's kind of my thing, man. It's like, and that's why I'm like so motivated to get up in the morning and, uh, you know, start off with meditation and go out and get some exercise. Like exercise has been such a huge part of my own happiness because, you know, they, they call it the runner's high, but that's ultimately that's coming back to like dopamine and serotonin and endorphins and all these chemicals that start rushing through your, your brain, your body and actually make you happy. And I think that is like a beautiful thing. Like literally just like go run out your door or hop on a bike or go swim or whatever it may be. And like, you're going to come back. You're going to feel way better. And I just don't feel like that's really being taught right now. You know, especially in a day and age when we have such a high amount of, of depression, anxiety, and stress right now. And, and there's actually some businesses now that are like encouraging staff to like have you know, like on the lunch break, be able to go to the gym because they're finding that they're coming back and being more productive. But I think all in all, it's it's a very simple tool for us to be able to, uh, yeah, just create a happier world. Just go out and be active. And that's just something like going back over the last however many hundreds of thousands of years, people were always the outdoors and working hard and like hunting and foraging and whatnot. We were just very active people. And now we're just becoming a much lazier society. And lo and behold, it seems like there's a lot more sadness in our society now. Yeah. I think it's sometimes simple to over romanticize like the natural world. We can do that. We can kind of err on one end or we can err on this other side that is, I think, a big pull for a lot of us. Like, we can be attached to our phones all the time. We can be at computers all the time. And so I think just increasingly, it seems to me that I'm kind of of the opinion the modern world and technology has given us a lot of seriously good tools. It's just, it's also created a bigger and bigger onus on us to figure out how to use these things wisely and effectively and that's not simple. That's not just like, oh, yeah, so yeah, I just that's cool. I just have to figure out what's beneficial and, and what's perhaps, uh, perhaps harmful about sort of a lot of this new tech or the new ways we're structuring lives. It's like, no, that's not simple. It takes a lot of reflection and work. But I kind of think maybe we're in a position where it's like, look, it used to be the case in like, as I don't know, the 1860s, average life expectancy was like 48 years old. I think a lot of us are pretty psyched that we're able to live longer lives and live with a, you know, high output, high activity levels in our lives. I, I certainly am grateful for that. And yet we still got a lot of work to do to figure out how to structure our lives in ways that are beneficial when we've got all this stuff at our disposal from prescription drugs to different forms of technology and the rest. And, and it's like, that's a pretty fundamental task, I think, for each of us. 
Yeah, there's definitely a lot of different options right now. <laughs> <laughs> this just makes it so complicated. Like, how do you how do you read between the lines and figure out what's going to work for you? And uh, and ultimately, I think that's the other that's like the other dance in life is just like trying to figure out what makes you happy and what feels right for you. Because there is no one answer, you know. And I think that's what makes it so challenging. It's, because there's a lot of different solutions out there, but there's a lot of different people out there. So, um, I, but I think that's what makes life really fun for me is just trying to like figure out, you know, what really makes me tick, and what makes me happy, and what gets me up early in the morning, and what motivates me. You know, how long has this been a specific interest or objective of yours? Is this a newer thing? Is this something that has kind of been around for a lot of years? Yeah. I would say I was 24 or five when uh, when I really started diving into this. And it was my, like my first big breakup and I was crushed, <laughs> like, like rock bottom, you know? And so that just, it brought me to a place of like reading self-help books and going to like spiritual retreat, uh, retreats and starting to do yoga and learning about meditation and and ultimately, like facing my my you know let's call it my shadow self or my pain body, you know, and like really having to dig through that. So I guess it's been fifteen years or so of just you know you know figuring out the uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly within myself. And uh, yeah, I feel like every year, you know, it's kind of like a roller coaster ride. Sometimes it's going great, and then sometimes you kind of dive back down into the hole, and then. Uh, but ultimately, it's like by going back into that hole, it's it's an opportunity for uh, for introspection and uh, and learning more about yourself. And then you kind of come back out, you know, and you're feeling on top of the world again. And then maybe something else comes up, and you kind of dive back down again, you know. And it's just like you kind of, I just for myself anyhow, I just kind of keep riding this roller coaster ride. But I feel like my ups and downs are becoming a little bit more leveled now, you know, and it's. Just not as wild of a ride, and uh, and so in turn, I just feel like I'm yeah having much more consistency in my in my days and weeks now, and and my energy is staying way higher now, and it's just uh, yeah like life truly gets better and better um, every day, every week for me, man. It's just been uh, yeah, I feel very very blessed to be uh, just living in this day and age where we have all these rad modalities and opportunities and so much knowledge around us right now that we can uh, keep diving into. It's uh, it's a beautiful thing. Man, there's a lot of ways we could go here. I'm because I'm still hung up on this point. And so just going back to you were that young buck skier coming up, standing on lines with Shane and Hugo. And now you're bringing some of these young bucks out yourself. I'm curious if you have much of a take on the the young buck skier today versus what your headspace was like or what your peers were like back then. No, I I feel like kids are getting smarter and smarter these days. Like a lot <laughs> smarter than when I was a kid, that's for sure. <laughs> you know. And uh and I'm not sure if that is just because of the the digital world that they're living in. Or maybe I just grew up under a rock. I'm not sure. <laughs> but uh, I feel like um, kids, at least in this ski scene anyhow, are, are a lot more tuned in than back in the day. 
and uh, tuned in in what ways? Um, just tuned into themselves. Um, so, for example, like going up on uh, going to Revelstoke this year and skiing with Sam and Carl and Logan, and being thrown in a helicopter. Like I think it was Sam's first time in a helicopter, and Carl had maybe been in there like once or twice before, but just seeing how yeah tune in they were into their own abilities and capabilities and being able to like implement what they want to do into their runs because they were doing super progressive tricks off of natural features like i saw more natural sevens on that trip than i ever have in my entire life <laughs> and so like to be able to do that isn't just being cocky you know it's like being very calculated as well and so, yeah, they're super talented, but they also had a very high rate of success, which just means that they're like, they know what they're doing and they're able to assess risk, you know, because I'm sure there was other things that they were looking at that they're like, well, no, that's too crazy. I'm just going to stick with this, you know? So just, I think that in itself is just like a, a representation of just being self-aware and knowing what you're capable of. Because like back in the day when we were <laughs> like learning how to grab and flip and spin, there was no calculation. We were like <laughs> full cowboy out there, you know? But I think now it's, it's pretty cool because a lot of these kids, they've got water ramps, they've got trampoline centers, they've got uh, airbags. Like these kids have so much, like such a rad level of progression with being how able to learn how to jump safely now. And they've got free ride programs with coaches there teaching them how to jump off a cliff properly and how to find a good landing. Like that was nothing we ever thought about back then, you know? And uh, so I feel like kids are just, you know, they're like on the path of like, there's like ninja training happening all over the place, you know, whether it's biking or skiing. And, and so, and I think with that, um, kids are being taught how to visualize. And I think that's a really important tool as well, you know, it's like, you know, especially with a slope or a pipe run or a big mountain run, you know, just like going through your head, closing your eyes and knowing exactly where you're going to make each turn, what cliff you're going to hit, how you're going to hit the next feature. And, uh, and I think visualization is just a, um, like a great way for people to, because I think visualization goes beyond just skiing, you know, I'm like, I'm a believer in just manifesting and creating my my life my reality and so i think you can very easily transfer the skills from skiing to life with through that tool of visualization good answer yeah i i mean and i think you know it's funny in some sports it seems like i think this happens often in like the nba you have old guard hall of fame players kind of talking about how the game the game used to be so much better and these young guys running around on the NBA floors these days. It's, it's like they never would have been anything special back in the day. And what you just said is a pretty strong endorsement of like, we're going to continue to see progression in a pretty significant way in part, just because there are so many additional tools and kind of training methods and the rest. And while a lot of your early segments still, I mean, that's always such a fun thing for me going back and seeing which segments would still seem super fresh 
right now, dropping today. And man, I mean, you, you to your credit and to, you know, certainly some of your peers, there it's it's not like even with the advantages that maybe skiers coming up today might have, man, it's not like all the old footage has sort of just been trumped. No, no, it's no, you're totally right. And uh, I always look back on on Pep and how he had this amazing ability to be able to land, switch, and pow on the Seth pistol, which is kind of like a mid fat ski that's fully cambered, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and how, like, I don't think people would really consider trying to do anything like that on a ski like that these days, you know? Like, now everybody's on a fully um, reversed cambered or fully rockered ski and that's really allowing them to be able to just to take off switch land switch and ski switch and whatnot you know but it was it's pretty impressive to see what people were doing back in the day with much lesser equipment <laughs> speaking of equipment yeah let's talk about equipment real quick at least um, all right <laughs> this is something that yeah i was like we are not going to turn this into a, a our gear 30 <laughs> episode but uh totally right just was curious i mean um so the let's say either this last season or the last couple of seasons, most of your days have been spent skiing what? The anima. So the reason I chose the the anima is just for me it's the most diverse with regards to having capabilities to be able to ski through firm crud to the opposite end of the spectrum being um, like heli skiing and skiing long, long, steep and like deep lines. And knowing that the ski that I'm on, like when I'm hitting that exit area at the bottom of the line, and I really don't want to blow the shot. That ski is going to be super strong under my feet. And I'm going to come out like I'm not going to back slap. I'm going to like more often than not, I can stomp on that ski. And that is a really good feeling, you know, because I, I spent a lot of time on the Nocta and that is a beautiful powder ski. Like, when I'm like tree skiing around the coast here or in Japan and I'm like, you know, like that is like the ultimate surfy ski. But as soon as I get into conditions where, you know, like in Revelstoke this year, for example, we, the freezing level spiked up to 9,000 feet before our trip. And we ended up skiing on this dust on crust for pretty much the whole trip. And so we we're kind of dancing around between like sun crust and and pow and breakable crust and and the anima was just like totally persevered and uh and just got me through all those adverse conditions so these days just to make sure i'm clear you're breaking that anima out most of the time or it really is conditions dependent if you know you're going to be in good clean kind of perfect deep Will you take the Nocta instead? Yeah. So when I'm sled skiing, I'll bring both the Nocta and the Anima on my snowmobile. So I've got that choice depending on what kind of feature I see. Um, but if I'm going heli skiing, then I'll bring the Anima just because even if it's good conditions, you're going to hit you're going to hit firm spots or you're going to hit an air that you know. If, 50-50 chance it's going to have a flatter landing than you want. And it's so nice because it's just got a little bit of uh, camber under my foot, but it's still um, got the double rocker shape in the, in the tip and the tail. So it's, 
you know, I can still like slash the ski out and, and have a lot of fun with it. But when it comes to having that stability under me, then that, that shape has just kind of um, proven itself time and time again for me. What, what's your height and weight and what length are you skiing in the Anima and Nocta? Yeah, so I'm five nine, five ten. If I'm telling the ladies, <laughs> tell I am. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm about uh, 170 pounds, and I'm uh, skiing on the 188. All, always, you're never choosing to go with a 188 on some days, a shorter length on others. No, no, it's uh, the 188s. Yeah, always worked really well for me, and it's. Um, yeah, it's great because you know even after going on the on the resort, I can rally groom runs with that thing. Like it's got a really nice side cut to it. It just holds an edge super well, and then the same same breath, being able to go into the backcountry with it, and then just having a ski that can just handle all conditions is just so key for me. Like just having trust in my gear is everything, you know, because that's like not something you want to think about when you're on top of the line. Like you don't want to have to worry about anything. It's just like. How am I going to get down this, you know, safely and ski it well, have my plan A, plan B. It's not like, well, I don't know. My body's not, might not hold up on this or my, my ski might kind of noodle out on me on this. You know, it's like just having full confidence is, is everything with what you're doing in life. You know, we were, we're going to, I'm staying true to my word. We're, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll keep the gear talk there. We, we have a million things that we could be talking about today, and I'm probably going to force you at some time to come back and do another one of these because there's a lot of other topics that I really would love to get into with you. But I think for now, you know, we have been talking a bit about this health and wellness stuff, and I think it would be very interesting. You've, you've spoken really well about this career of yours, and you know, you've had a couple of injuries in the past, I think around 2010, 2011, but the fact that you're now 39, you know, Funkel Abma, <laughs> um, <laughs> still doing it and still doing it at a high level. I'd love to hear a bit about some of the key things that you think have been maybe really critical in letting you continue to operate in a high level. Again, as you're coming into a bit of this off season, or as you, if things switch up, as you start getting closer to, you know, say this coming season, just talk a bit about some of those staples. Yeah. So I'd say previous years, I was always so busy during the summer that I wasn't really dedicating as much time as I'd like to with regards to getting the gym, getting my, you know, for me, it's getting my, my legs strong, um, back core I guess it's kind of one of the same and shoulders you know those are the kind of like the breaking points on our bodies it seems so these days like I've got a trainer now so with that it's for me it's, it's like an accountability partner because I guess in the past I haven't always been that good about being self-motivated just to to stay in shape so so anyway I've, I've got a really great training program so that's been super helpful and so I'll, with that, I'm in the gym like four to five days a week. And I'm varying between a lower and upper and, and core kind of gets mixed in with that. And cardio is a super big part of my life because I think that's ultimately what makes me happiest. 
like when I was a kid, I was into track and field and I was just like, I was a runner and I was into cross country running. So that's like, I don't know, just a little bit in my blood, I guess. So with that, um, I still run and hike and, uh, and do a lot of biking. Mountain biking, road biking, both? Yeah, uh, I used to road bike. I kind of stopped doing it because I just don't really like dealing with traffic anymore. And I'd, <laughs> I'd rather be in the trails and be around trees and on a single track than on tarmac, I guess. Although I do appreciate road biking because you can go so far in a day and see a lot. But, um, and then I guess with all that being said, like all those activities are quite um, stressful on the body and cause inflammation and whatnot. So in order to mitigate that inflammation, I'm a big proponent of cold plunges. So at home, I've got uh, some cold pools. And so I'll, I'll hop in those things like in the morning, midday, end of day, and I'll just like keep immersing myself in that and, uh, you know, that's got a lot of benefits in itself from, you know, mental to physical aspect. But I guess physically speaking, it helps flush out lactic acid. Um, it increases blood flow. And, of course, when you're increasing blood flow, you're moving more oxygen, you're moving more nutrients, and that helps create healing. And then yoga is, is another huge part because, I mean, if I were, like, just to go to the gym and just hop my bike, my body would get so tight that I'd be – snapping ligaments and tendons and muscles left right and center so um yeah getting into yoga and doing that three four days a week is is amazing for the body and it's really nice just to have some time to chill out and give your give your brain a break as well so that's just kind of how i help try to maintain that balance with my body and then of course fuel is is as key as, as anything, you know, it's like, um, like maybe when you're younger, you can get away with eating like shit and still be able to perform. But for me now, I find, um, you know, whether it's speaking ethically or just, you know, speaking more just on a performance level, you know, like giving yourself all the proper nutrients just so your body can be firing on all cylinders and also have the ability to be able to recover as quickly as possible so the next day you can do it all over again and, and not be hurting, right? So so my diet is, I'd say it's kind of streamlined now. Like I'm kind of in a routine where I do the same thing just about every day. <laughs> but it's, it works really well for me because I don't have a lot of extra time in my day. Like although I'm up early and I'm you know, I'm up at 5 a.m. and I go to bed at 10. I still don't have a lot of time to like sit down and make a meal for myself. So it's I'm making a smoothie for myself in the morning that's really quite complex, but I can make it in like two minutes. And uh, I'm actually taking a break from coffee right now, and uh, which has been awesome for me actually because I find coffee is great. <laughs> and it's super like it can give you a ton of energy but like around three o'clock all of a sudden i'm like oh no i'm slowing down and i kind of want to take a nap right now you know so i've uh, i've got a, a coffee alternative that i use and i mix in my smoothie and then i'll throw uh, like a vegetarian protein powder in there um and mct oil which is great for burning fat it's great fuel for your brain 
and then I throw in some uh, non-hallucinogenic mushrooms. <laughs> I love that you qualify the mushroom part. So, yeah, you don't you don't start your day off tripping. Totally right. <laughs> cool. Not that I have anything against that, but there's <laughs> <laughs> a time and a place. And then uh, greens are obviously super super important. So I'm throwing in wheatgrass, moringa, chlorella, spirulina, and then had a had a one. Um, or Hannah makes a product called Hannah One, and that's got um, 30 Ayurvedic uh, ingredients in there. And uh, so, and then I add hemp milk and a banana, and throw it in my blender, and and that's my fuel for the morning, and that keeps me going till midday. And then I'll have a salad, and in my salad, I'll throw in some hummus, um, like a a fermented product like a sauerkraut or a kimchi or whatever with some avocado and, and an egg and uh and then that'll keep me going through till till the evening and if i'm at home then i'll just make a big batch of curry and i'll crush that for like four or five days um and then i guess with regards to protein and eating meat like i eat meat i don't know a couple times a week and I'm pretty picky about the kind of meat that I'm eating, you know, just to ensure that it's, you know, it's organic. Um, and that's kind of like my big thing, you know, because there's a lot of, a lot of crap that's being put into our meat these days. And, um, and that's actually one thing that I try to focus on eating as much of, as much as possible of is just um, eating organic food. And luckily living where I do, we have a lot of farms around us. So uh, I've got access to really great food that's growing right in the Pemberton Valley. So, uh, and then I've got a big garden out front. So I'm uh, picking greens from there and, and veggies from there. Yeah, it's kind of the, the program on, I'm on right now. It's like it's a lot, of, a lot of ingredients, but I'm just kind of streamlining it into, uh, into a simple process. So I'm not spending a ton of time making food, but I'm still giving myself high-quality food. Yeah, just because... Like right now, I'm exercising a lot, I'm working a lot, and I'm 39 right now. I'm turning 40 next March, and so my whole goal is to be in the best shape of my life for when I turn 40 so I can like set the tone for the rest of my life so that I can, I can continue to do all these sports and be active for, for as long as possible. Like I want to be shredded pow in my 90s <laughs> and doing it well, you know? And kiteboarding and biking and like whatever other sports might come along in the near future. And, uh, and ultimately, like being active is like truly does make me happy. So I think as long as my body is capable, then I can keep, uh, yeah, keep pushing myself. And with that, just keep feeding myself super well. And, and thankfully, we've got access to like all these amazing superfoods these days or just you know, just good old like meat and potatoes are coming from the valley, you know? So I'm curious, like what time roughly do you tend to go to bed? What time are you getting up these days? So I used to be on the program of going to bed around midnight and then waking up at seven or eight in the morning. And then by the time I finished making breakfast for myself, I would have to roll into whatever was my objective for the day. And so as of the beginning of May or mid-April, then I started going to bed uh, around 10 p.m. and getting up between 5 and 6 a.m., kind of depending, you know, if I were to go to bed at 11, well, then I would sleep in until 6, but if I'm going to bed at 10, then I'll wake up at 5, 
And the whole goal is just to utilize the first couple hours of the day. Firstly, just to get some time to meditate for myself because that was something I wasn't consistent with. And then I kind of switched it up kind of depending on where I am and what I'll be doing that in that afternoon. So right now I'm going to the gym about four days a week. And then there's the, the Chief in Squamish, which is like a 1,200 vertical foot hike. And so I'm like working my way up to running up and down that. And then after that, then I'll go to the lake and, uh, and then I'll go for a swim there. Or if I didn't get my meditation first in the morning, then I'll do that at the lake. And then I'm usually back, like taking a shower by 8 a.m. and ready to start my day. And then I, I work throughout the day. And then in the afternoon, if I, if I was in the gym that morning, then I'll do cardio by going biking in, in the afternoon. And then do yoga in the evening, like usually between 7 and 9 p.m. And by the time all that is said and done, I'll come back home, make my breakfast and lunch for the next day, and then put myself to bed. And I just force myself to read, even if it's one page. <laughs> Basically, just turn my phone off. Just don't look at my phone because that's something I'm really trying to break that habit of. It's just staring at a screen. And uh, yeah, it's been really, really nice because I feel like all of these things are items that I've been talking about wanting to incorporate into my life on a more consistent level. And, uh, and now that I've been doing it for a month and a half, it feels incredible. And it's really just creating a schedule for myself and following it. And sleep is kind of first and foremost in order for me to be able to do all of this. Just going back to, you know, you're talking about you're in the gym four to five days a week, and then you're also doing yoga. I find that just certain weeks just totally get blown up for me. And so I kind of have my own elements of like, okay, this actually, if, if I'm only going to get one or two workouts in, in a given week, I'm curious, would that, would that time of yours be spent in the weight room or doing cardio or doing yoga on a week where you really got to make the hard choice. We know you'd rather be doing all of these things, but when it comes down to it, what do you actually keep? Yeah. Then I would take cardio as taking precedence over yoga or going to the gym because I think getting back to what cardio can do with regards to just releasing all those happy uh those happy hormones like getting back to the the serotonin and dopamine and endorphins and um ultimately that's what makes me happiest and and as i'm getting older it's like well fact of the matter is it's like your metabolism is probably going to start slowing down so you know i want to stay lean and light on my feet and so i feel like biking is what's going to continue to allow my body to stay in that state and then when we are talking about the the gym, I presume we're talking at least about some amount of pretty basic or what we might call Olympic lifting. I don't do so much Olympic lifting. I mean, I guess I do uh, some, and maybe I'm just not knowing what Olympic lifting is. Like I'll do some deadlifts and squats, but not not too much actually. Like this time of year, I don't. So not getting under the rack to do barbell squats. 
Um, no, I'm doing more single leg squats and stuff that requires more balance and like getting on a, on a balance board while I have like a couple lighter dumbbells in my hands. And that will progress as I get near to the winter where I will start putting, putting myself under a squat rack and start pushing a little bit more weight. But if you don't have all those stabilizing muscles working for you, then having a big bulky quad isn't going to do too much for you, in my opinion. So it's, I, don't know, I think as I'm getting older, I'm yeah, not doing like the bench press so much anymore, you know? It's like more working with, uh, with cables and, and uh, dumbbells or barbells or dumbbells rather. And um, really kind of working like, um, like if I'm doing shoulders or chest or whatever, I'm doing like one side at a time and I'm standing on one leg. And if I'm doing the front of my body, then I'm going to balance it out with the back of my body. And always kind of like reciprocating um, one exercise for another to help balance it out. I'm just curious, I guess, whether you have one or two key indicators or like I know I've done the work in these ways. And so I feel maybe I haven't hit a hundred percent on this whole spectrum of stuff that you are doing and would love to be doing, consider optimal. You want to at least know you've done the work on these couple of fronts. Yeah. Um, and I used to operate on that, that principle for sure. Like I felt like if I was able to, I believe it was squat 290, yeah, 285 pounds. It was like six or eight reps. Then I felt like I was my my legs were strong and I was good to go. But uh, in turn, I think this is something that my physio determined because I ended up having knee injuries that year. Was that I might have been lifting the weight, but I might not have been activating my glutes while I was doing it. And so, if you don't have all the proper muscles being activated, well, then things are going to start becoming disjointed and you're going to start having injuries. So um, I guess now I don't really have so much of specific baselines that I'm, that I'm going for. And really um, just knowing that I've done all the work that I feel like I need to be doing, because at the end of the day, it's like, we don't really know what's best. We're all kind of going off of our own logic or, you know, our trainer's logic or whatever it may be. And that is changing so rapidly you know it's like and uh and at the end of the day it's like i'm gonna get myself in the best shape possible but as soon as you go to do a top to bottom down like spanky's ladder up off of black for example it's like a three thousand foot straight punch and for me i think that's more of my guide or baseline now if i can make it from the top to the bottom down to the the cat track and I'm not completely gassed, like my legs aren't shot, and I'm not totally out of breath, then I'm like, all right, now I'm feeling like I'm starting to get in good ski shape because there's a big difference, you know? It's like we can get ourselves strong in the gym or we can like get ourselves, you know, fast on our bike, but it's all so much different than when you get on skis. So I think it's <laughs> doing whatever we can to just – yeah, create that good baseline and hopefully that transfers well to whatever we're or to when we get on our skis.
And uh, and that's where like early season, that's what I do. I just do as many top to bottoms as possible, you know, and just like burn the bejesus out of my legs, you know, and and ultimately like when that's happening, and that's when I just start like focusing on my breath, you know, like um and Wim Hof has a great exercise for that, you know, and just like expelling CO2, increasing your O2. And uh and with that, that just really helps kind of um improve your your body's ability to be able to perform and just move through um lactic acid and get oxygen to where it really needs to and uh so when i'm skiing i'm getting to that point where i'm like i feel like i should be pulling over because my legs might collapse on me i just start like breathing like a horse man (laughs) (laughs) yeah and just uh and just slowly kind of work my way up that way and and then you know it's sounds funny but i still get in the park and you know i feel like the impact from hitting tables really kind of helps build up my leg strength as well and you know you get air awareness that comes along with that because even though i don't have as many tricks as i used to anymore like i still i kind of love getting in there because i love seeing what other kids are doing and 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 they really inspire me and it's just fun to be able to hang on to the the few tricks that i do have left that it's still like quite enjoyable to to play around that way well hey um those who know you will know that we uh, we did not cover in this conversation a whole lot of topics that we could. You've got a got an open invitation, and and uh, we'll have to just figure out a time when we can revisit and talk about a lot of other stuff that I know you're passionate about and that matters a whole lot and just a whole different front. Yeah, sounds great, man. Well, hey, Mark, thank you so much, and uh, great to connect, and uh, look forward to doing it again real soon. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Mark for the conversation and to Luke Alley for producing this episode. And if you're enjoying conversations like this one, then we would encourage you to share it with your friends and leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, everybody. Please take good care out there. And we will catch you later this week over on our Gear 30 podcast. 